Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with international correspondent Zofia Zviglinska. How are you, Zofia? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. This is our final Week in Review episode of the year. Next week, or yeah, next week we will be recording, and then in two weeks we will be uh, airing a end of year episode, so year in review, and then we'll be back in January with Week in Review again. So thanks for joining for our final Week in Review episode. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about two stories that, Zofia, I feel like are are up your alley. They're two things that you've covered a ton. Um, first, we're going to talk about COP28, which is ongoing as of the time we record this, and I think will still be ongoing when this episode comes out, um, which is the big climate conference happening in Dubai right now. We'll talk a little bit about some of the results coming out of that conference, um, and then we'll we'll go into some of your reporting about generative AI, how fashion brands are using it, the risks, the benefits, all that kind of stuff. Let's start with COP28. So as most of our listeners probably know, COP28 and COP in general is the annual giant meeting of government officials and environmentalists and activists and, uh, yes, energy lobbyists to discuss the future of the planet. Um, They meet every year. There was a lot of pessimism at the beginning of this year's COP because of the massive presence of fossil fuel lobbyists there. I was reading there was some stat like last year there were 630-something fossil fuel lobbyists in attendance, and then this year there was like 2,400. Probably has something to do with the fact that it was held in the UAE, which is an oil state. Um, But that's not a good sign when we're trying to get away from fossil fuels to have like literally thousands of fossil fuel lobbyists there. And the interesting thing was it seemed like at first it was going to be sort of, you know, the I think during the discussions they took terminology out of the agreement that said anything about leaving fossil fuels behind. There was no mention at all of trying to not use fossil fuels anymore. And then it kind of, out of nowhere, last second, they extended the deadline. There were discussions going late into the night, and they ended up with an agreement that does explicitly say, or at least set out, uh, you know, terms for the world transitioning away from fossil fuels. It's not quite as strong language as people hope, I think, um, and definitely could have been stronger, but it's also better than I think a lot of people were expecting to to get from this year's COP. Uh, you, so you cover a lot of climate stuff. Um, Zofia, what, what was your take on, you know, the ups and downs of this year's event? Which I think is still ongoing. We're recording this Thursday morning. Yeah, I believe it's going on till Tuesday, I think. It's, it's essentially quite a, a long event, um, but a lot of the kind of key discussions happen around certain days. So sometimes it's okay if you know, certain people miss it. But yeah, of course, COP in general is, um, you know, a really big conference. Um, And I think that this year, especially, it was very much focused on energy. And as you said, like fossil fuel activists um, and lobbyists held very big kind of presences there just because of the location, I think, um, of this year's COP and also the level of kind of marketing and spend involved. Um, Typically, you know, because COP moves around every year, like it's not necessarily something where there's a huge amount of money put forward to do very kind of flashy presentations and things. But I think because it was based in Dubai, there was a lot of of that happening and even some things that were happening for fashion. Um, I think this is the first time that there's been an actual fashion show um, at COP. But again, I feel like it kind of lends itself slightly more to the marketing kind of side of things um, rather than the uh, good for the climate, good for the planet, good for, you know, small island states um, aspects that they should be focusing on. 
And I think it's really interesting with um, that kind of energy aspect that it's become such a big focus for fashion as well. Um, had Gabriella Hurst um, basically supporting um, fusion power, which is nuclear. Um, there was a lot of kind of discussions around the possibilities for implementing kind of solar and wind power in supply chains um, and a couple of announcements from companies like H&M. Um, so I think it's it's a big kind of sign that this is where a lot of companies are focusing on right now because they know that taking carbon out of their supply chain in other areas is going to be a lot more difficult. And a lot of the times the energy powering the whole supply chain actually contributes quite a lot to their carbon impact. So having that and making these announcements at this COP especially um, and the commitments to renewables, whether that is, you know, fusion or wind and, and uh, solar, like those kind of things um, are really indicative of where the space is going. And obviously that's somewhat kind of pushed by regulation. So obviously not, not saying that it's all coming from the brands, um, but it is definitely a, a better move. Um, and it seems like a very kind of serious commitment. Yeah, I think the the frustration that happens for a lot of people who are concerned about the climate with events like COP is that even if you get a really nice sounding agreement, it's often, you know, there's not a ton of mechanisms by which you can force anybody to actually do what they say they're going to do. So like ultimately this agreement is just words. It is they are powerful words and the fact that it explicitly says, you know, the world is going to move away from fossil fuels is a win, you know, compared to what it could have been, which is not even acknowledging it at all. But yeah, I always come out of these kinds of things, you know, same with like the Paris Accords or any sort of UN resolutions. I'm like, okay, but how do we make people do it instead of just promising it, you know? So I, I think that's, um, you know, one element of the fact that it's really just a non-binding agreement. But um, even the fact that, uh, you know, the UAE and a lot of um, countries in that area are built on oil economies. Their fossil fuels is, is their, that's why they're called petrostates. So the fact that a lot of them were on board, at least, again, at the linguistic level of saying that they will commit to moving away from fossil fuels eventually, um, you know, that, that feels like a big win. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, and obviously a lot of these um, kind of bigger uh, Middle Eastern states and companies are actually getting more involved in the fashion industry now. So having their presence in there um, is going to be quite important. I think, you know, Valentino was bought out initially by um, a Middle Eastern company, and I think that's been passed over now. But um, it's it's showing that there's kind of more, um, more kind of control and spending power in that area, and that it could really affect change if there are um, renewable focuses there. And I believe that the Chalhoub Group, which is a luxury, luxury group coming out of that area, has also made an announcement um, during the COP um, around kind of the commitments they would like to make um, in terms of retail in the Middle East. So I think it's it's both kind of showing that, you know, just because you're in that area doesn't necessarily mean um, it's just going to be pure kind of oil support. Um, and then the other thing that's interesting that came out of COP is the loss and damage fund, which was announced quite late last year um, at the COP um, and kind of a surprise because it basically is um, a reparations act for um, small countries um, and nations that are affected by climate change now and can't afford to make the changes um, so as to prevent kind of future effects um, on their countries Um 
economy, agriculture, like there's a lot of areas that are affected. Um, and this year, you know, there's been some money contributed to that, mainly from the EU, some from the US um, and some from the UK. Um, and it's still a paltry amount. I think the one of the people I spoke to for my piece that came out last week around the topic um, said that it would cover one good flood. Um, so it's still definitely not in the same kind of um, amounts that it should be to, to kind of cover proper kind of climate mitigating actions. But I think in general that the aspect of climate mitigation and even kind of climate adaptation at this point has been a really kind of big topic this year um because it's also mm -hmm. something that really affects fashion you know if you have a supply chain that even let's say it's run on like solar and wind and all of the good stuff if you have a flood completely take those solar panels down that is basically shutting down power to that whole plant so possible like adaptation things are really important to brands right now because if they're relying on supply chains you know further down in the system or somewhere in the global south like that is going to be something that will affect their brand activity you know whether they're going to be sourcing materials or just having material production there like that is something that's really going to affect them yeah yeah for sure and I, i'm glad that that fund exists because i feel like that's another uh bit of frustration that has come out of a lot of climate talks the last couple of years is the idea that there are you know poorer countries in the global south who are more affected by climate change and have fewer resources to combat it and are also the ones who are kind of expected to do the most because that's where a lot of the supply chain originates from. And that's just kind of an unfair setup. And I, I know leaders from some of those countries have basically said exactly that, like we can, like, we have to keep cutting down trees or we have to keep doing, you know, selling oil rights because we need to like fund our country. Like we just don't, you know, we can't do it any other way. Um, it definitely feels like if we want to have a better long-term solution to the climate, like that's a major thing we have to think about. I feel like some of the conversations about climate stuff are interesting to me because people sometimes talk as if we are currently in a state of neutrality and like we need to, you know, do better. But it's not really like that. We're, we're, it's like the status quo is like barreling toward an unlivable planet. You know, it's like we're go. It's like every day we're not going in the right direction is a day we're like going very fast the bad direction, sort of. So sometimes when I see things like this COP agreement said we'll move away by, from fossil fuels by 2050, um, which is great. I mean, it would be great if we were not using fossil fuels at all, but that's such a long time. And like there's so much stuff that's going to happen between now and then. And I feel that way anytime some brand is like, we're going to be we're going to reduce our emissions by 2% over the next 30 years or something. And I, I know that it's like not easy to make a big change operationally and definitely not on a global scale. But like sometimes that just reads to me as like, you might as well not do anything if you're going to spread it out over that long of a time period, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I actually remember, I think we, we spoke on the weekend review, I think like two years ago about retrofitting supply chains and how that was kind of like an impossible task. I feel like now it's kind of come to fruition that it really is an impossible task and it's almost, um, you know, too difficult. I think there's there's been some um, data released this year that most of the brands that have made climate commitments won't be able to meet them based on current trajectories. So I think it just, it goes to show that, you know, there's there's so little kind of actually being put into action Um because it's all kind of focused on on that bottom line still. Um, and obviously with the year that a lot of brands have had, 
it's it's probably going to be quite a big focus to to just get that financial aspect going rather than thinking about you know more long term impact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, okay, last thing, and then we will move on. It's also I feel like a great way to like get some short term positive press is to say you're going to do something by 2040 or whatever. And then in a couple of years, when it turns out you're nowhere close to doing that, it's like, well, people forgot about it already and we got the good press at the time. So not to call anybody out, but I do feel like that is maybe a motivation sometimes for uh, claims like that. Anyway, let's move on. Um, so, Zofia, you're writing something right now about generative AI. Um, and this is a topic I know you've written about before and, and you're very knowledgeable about it. Kind of like crypto and like Web3 stuff. I feel like I'm a little bit of a skeptic. Like, I feel like I read a lot of stuff that's, talking about how AI is going to change everything and revolutionize the whole world. And I'm always like a little bit skeptical of it. Um, is there, is it just hype? Like in your experience writing about it, is there, what are some of the real actual uses that, that brands are, are, you know, using it for? Yeah, of course. Um, so, I mean, I think that like the web three and AI, just because like there's a technology kind of integration there, I think that they still need to be differentiated because obviously one, you're talking about like a completely new state of the internet. And with AI, it's basically just like a technology tool that's being implemented the same way that, um, you know, the internet or like any of the other technologies that fashion has adopted um, has just kind of come up and helped um, rather than kind of replace the whole thing, like what is expected to come with Web3. Um, and AI in general has had a really big year this year because of generative AI and the kind of leaps and bounds um, the technology has made like progress in um, and especially around imagery and video. So there's been a lot of kind of opportunities there for fashion brands to start automating their content. Um, you know, they can make up completely random images and texts and put it up in social media, which obviously makes, you know, putting out kind of marketing content a lot faster. Um, but there's also, you know, kind of very useful ways to use AI kind of on the back end to manage supply and overproduction um, and all of these other things that are kind of plaguing the, the fashion industry. And to be honest, this briefing's come out of a discussion that I had at the New Codes um, panel um, with some of the panelist guests around AI use. Um, and a lot of them were kind of talking about how even though like Shein is like a flawed model because of the sustainability aspects, the overproduction. In terms of like the technology use, the AI use, and the way that they're looking at kind of predictive demand, um, that was actually something that, you know, a lot of people and a lot of brands are going to be copying over the next couple of years. Um, and their model basically looks at, you know, kind of predicting what will be interesting for customers based on existing data that they have from their purchases, as well as, you know, kind of wider trends um, and things that are more interesting for, you know, customers looking at new stuff and things they want to buy. And so merging those two things, which is basically just huge, huge amounts of data um, and analyzing that with AI and then only producing kind of limited sets of those items um, and then possibly kind of just making those if people don't like it, switching to something else like that is kind of going to be a model that I think a lot of brands are going to be looking at. Um, and it's actually being tested to launch new product categories, for example. So I think there's a lot of brands there that are thinking about predictive demand um, and that's one major AI use obviously like tracking inventory so like AI can be used again to just quantify and kind of manage a lot of data 
which, you know, with the amount of products that brands have, like that is really, really important. Um, if you have a person overseeing something like that, it's easy for things to get lost or for data not to be pointed out as missing, for example. While with AI, that is something they can do. Um, and then, you know, finally, it's like all of those customer service aspects. Um, I don't know if you've ever been, you know, stuck on the phone or stuck online trying to sort out like a return or like something like basic. No, never. Like, it, <laughs> <laughs> like is, does this come in like this color or like, is this going to fit me? Like fit technology can be improved using AI by again, kind of combining um, a lot of data points to make a more accurate kind of average body type or a variety of different body types. And I think that's something that, you know, Google is using already to kind of try and assess those sizing aspects. Um, and then on the other hand, it's just customer support in general. You know, you have AI chatbots that are right now are kind of a little bit rickety, I'd say. They're still not at like a good level. But I think at some point over the next like two years, they will end up being a lot more helpful and even assisting, you know, regular kind of customer service people in just processing those inquiries a lot faster and more efficiently. Like, I think that's something that always gets me is like, you know, we're living in 2023 and yet you can stay on the phone for like 15 minutes just to like return a product it is a bit ridiculous. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah, so just product recommendations and like privacy um, and then also like fraud detection and things like that. So a lot of really interesting topics. Well, it, it's interesting because I feel like all of the the uses that you bring up are all like to me sound very practical and they also sound kind of like not as flashy. It's just sort of behind the scenes, like, you know, sorting through data and stuff. And it's funny because I, I do think there's a similarity to like Web3 or like NFT technology in that the practical uses are, you know, boring, but very useful and not what people talk about most of the time. You know, and, and like, I feel like with AI, a lot of the stuff I've seen, and I'm sensitive about this because I am a writer and that's, you know, I, I feel like all the AI people are like, enjoy being poor and like your job is about to be obsolete and stuff like that, which I don't think is true because I have, I have read stuff generated by AI and it's like, it's not that it's not passable. It's just like very plain, you know, and, and like, I feel like that's not, you know, people don't want to pay for like passable, plain, like possibly wrong stuff. So I feel like the content side of it is really interesting to me. And it's probably this, the place where I'm most skeptical, like something that comes up a lot with text, like AI generated text is like possibilities of plagiarism. Like there have been publications that have published AI articles or AI written articles and then had to retract them because it's like 99% the same as someone else's article. Is there a risk of that with like, AI fashion designs too, if it's pulling from, you know, inspiration from a huge data set that includes other people's designs, is it, you know, so that side of it, I feel like seems much more riskier and where I have a lot of skepticism, but then like you're saying stuff like just sorting through a bunch of data or like, you know, processing some return, it's not as exciting and maybe doesn't get investors as, you know, amped up about it, but it feels much more like what that technology should be doing. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I mean, from an investor standpoint, anything that's going to start reducing costs um, and a lot of these kind of data heavy aspects, you know, typically do require bigger teams or kind of more expensive tech, like having, um, you know, large scale language models, which is what AI is, process that in a much kind of quicker way, just essentially keeps those costs down. And yeah, I completely agree with you on the content side. 
I think from the design side, it's a really kind of interesting question because like designers have been inspired by each other's work for like for so long. And like, I think that in general, you know, when you see um, a designer kind of leading up to the collection, like they'll go through like reference books or like archives and it's not necessarily just their own um, or the brand they're working for. Like they'll look at other people's, they'll look at inspiration elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I think it's it's basically the same there. Like I think with AI, it's almost like just doing that, but just a lot faster and wider, which yeah. does lead to a lot of very like boring, similar looking products. The other thing is I feel like you, if you're a designer and you personally are looking at inspirations and different sources and stuff, and then you make something inspired by that, like you know what data went into your brain. Whereas if you have the AI do it, you're not sure where it's pulling from necessarily. You might give it prompts or whatever. Obviously, I know you can do that, but like it might put out something that looks very similar to, you know, something your competitor made. And like, if you didn't look at it yourself, you might not realize that. So like, I feel like you know, if you're a designer doing that, it is like ultimately a similar process in that your brain is taking in ideas and inspiration from all these sources and then put something out. But at least you know what it was. I mean, you might not, con- you might make something that's similar to something you saw and not realize it. That can happen. But I don't know. I just feel like the danger is greater with AI. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, if you're thinking as a brand to use it for like that design aspect, then you should just be thinking about creating your own like AI data set and AI tool that is completely mm-hmm. internal. So closed off from anyone else. And then you can just use right. that to like. Goes through your ideally. own archives or something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, it seems like there's a lot of interesting use cases. And like, as you said, like a lot of the kind of more interesting ones for brands, even though they're not as flashy, will be those ones on the back end um, to kind of help, you know, create new categories or like revenue opportunities or cut costs like these are things that especially now I think for a lot of brands are very very important so and you're in your you know reporting and talking to people are a lot of them building in-house AI you know models or a lot of them using open AI or some other or, or Google or something what's the what does that landscape look like? Because I know there's a lot of, you know, there's a huge arms race and every big 10 company is trying to build their own thing. But as far as brands, are they like working with outside people? Yeah, definitely. I think it's um, it's more kind of service tools that they're working with. So different companies obviously have sprung up um, over the last year and to be honest, over the last two years even, focusing on AI services that could be useful to brands. Um, And a lot of those kind of focus on specific tasks. So whether that is kind of just customer support, that is what they're focusing on and kind of thinking about how to integrate that on the back end um, into a brand's um, kind of current e-com experience and what they're doing there to make it as kind of seamless as possible. Because I think a lot of the times, you know, if it's too, like, AIE, then, you know, it it kind of ends up taking away from like a customer experience, especially if it's something that's, you know, in luxury or in like a more premium um, brand, like they want it to be something that's kind of very personable. But then also for like predictive and forecasting, like there's some services which are actually working with brands even before they design products in just trying to anticipate what kind of demand they'll have. Um, And I know that there's some big kind of athleisure companies that are thinking about, you know, which categories to expand into over the last year based on this kind of data. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, I still count myself as a little bit of a skeptic, but I, I, I can see you've convinced me that there are some real uses for this out there that are just behind the scenes. Um, I, I feel like I still want to reserve judgment on the the hype that it will totally, totally revolutionize everything because I feel like it, the the hinge for me is like how good are the data sets that they're being trained on because I've already heard um, you know some some talk about like. Uh, what's the term they use, like source rot or something like that. It's like if the AIs are starting to train on each other's content, then it's like slowly starts to degrade the quality of like, you know, what they can output, which totally seems like a risk for me. But again, if you're just using it to like sort through your own data and like do that mm. kind of backend stuff, that's like less of a risk. So I don't know. I, I definitely feels like right now we're in uh, not a bubble, but like a huge spike of investing and everyone wanting to like try it out and test out a million different use cases and see what works. Um, maybe in a year from now, some of those will have fallen away and others will emerge as like, you know, what this technology is best for and what it's not so good for. Um, definitely think that if you are a media company, you should not fire your reporters and replace it with poorly written AI articles. But I have, you know, the completely unbiased opinion here as a writer, but... <laughs> It's just has not worked out so far. And I don't think people should go down that route. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think it's, you know, like also just like brands are really careful about their privacy. Like, why would you want to kind of share that with everyone? Like, I think there's going to be a lot of issues around that. I don't think it's going to be quite as like widespread because everyone's going to be holding on to their own stuff like so tightly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, cool. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Um, Zofia, thank you for joining for the final Week in Review episode of the year. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk about such like in-depth topics. Yeah, it's it's great to have a, a time during the week where we can just chat about stuff. We spend a lot of time talking to people and, you know, hearing about all these things. It's And it's great to, yeah, have an outlet for us to just, you know, send out our own thoughts on them. Um, for those of you listening, thank you so much for another year of Week in Review. It's so fun doing this podcast and having you all listen to it. Um, and also, I love when you guys DM me about stuff in the episodes or ideas, things like that. Please feel free to send us a DM uh, on Instagram or wherever. Um, I think that's cool. And also, while you're doing that, don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to this podcast, because that helps us out so much. Um, and don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because you'll hear interviews with industry insiders every Wednesday and we can review episodes every Friday. So until next year, thank you for listening. Thank you.